Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you that we know who Jesus is and you've revealed to us what you say. Uh, Please also help us, even though in the Bible there are things that uh, might be difficult to accept, uh, please soften our hearts so we can accept your message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends of mine love the idea that God is love. Uh, They're keen to tell all their friends about it and share that God loves them. God loves them so much that he gave his only son. But they get annoyed when people ask them about God's judgment. They don't like to talk about it, and they always turn the topic back to God's love. On the other hand, my atheist friends always talk about God's anger, and they hate the idea of God because of this. Many of them have a term to describe him. use it as a mocking term. They say he's an angry sky daddy. A Google search confirms these kinds of terms. Uh, People come up with these names because they hate what the Bible says about God's judgment. They hate that it says God gets angry at those who reject him. And so in their anger, they make up offensive names for him. They describe God as things like capricious, uh, infantile, or sadistic. Now, we might be offended, but this is what a lot of people think about God today. They refuse to believe in God because to them, God is a violent, vengeful sky daddy. To them, he's hateful and just a spoil sport. But what about you? Do you find yourself uh, avoiding uh, speaking about God and his judgment? Or uh, find yourself sympathising with non-Christians who are upset with God being angry. What do you think about God's wrath? How does God's anger sit with you? Now, we've been through a lot of revelation uh, over the past couple of months, and we've seen a lot of the chaos that ensues between God and his enemies, this spiritual battle. In today's chapter, we see more of the unfolding of God's plan, And we come to the seven bowls of judgment. Chapters 15 and 16 tell of God's judgment. And it's in these chapters that there's content that people often shrink from. They say that God is a God who is angry. He hates injustice and will put an end to it. So please have your Bibles open. We're at Revelation chapter 15. And that's page 874 in the small print Bibles and 1929 in the large print Bibles. Now throughout Revelation, John has received vision after vision of the end times. And here, John receives another wondrous vision. It's a picture of heaven and he sees seven angels and they're ready to complete God's wrath. Kind of like soldiers who are strapping on their weaponry. Now, together with this image, John sees a cheerful picture. There's a sea of glass, and on the shore of this otherworldly sea, people are singing. They are the ones who overcome the beast and its image. It's almost like those old clips of women and children wishing soldiers well as they board the warship. While the angels are preparing for God's wrath, 
the saints are celebrating. They're not embarrassed of his wrath. They play their harps and sing the Bible's victory song, the Song of Moses, which is also the Lamb's song. And this is a clear allusion to the Exodus, where the Israelites celebrate after God delivers them from a hard-hearted Pharaoh. Now, just like the Israelites, these saints sing praise to God for his deeds. And they sing of his unparalleled kingship. Everyone, everywhere, will bend the knee to God. The saints celebrate this, and they're not embarrassed of God's wrath. Read with me from verse 1. Revelation 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Then John's vision of heaven continues. The focus is back on the seven angels from before. John sees a temple which then opens. And like paratroopers, out come the seven angels. They're dressed in clean linen with seven with clean linen with golden sashes. The same way that a fierce and awesome Jesus is described in chapter one. The angels are then each given a bowl, and they're full. Full with the wrath of God. Their mission is to pour out this wrath over all the earth and nothing will stop them until it's finished. Have a look at verse 5. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is John's vision. Chapter 15 introduces the judgment to come. And the saints aren't embarrassed about it. In fact, they celebrate. As this happens, the seven angels are commissioned to bring God's judgment. There is no doubt Their mission will be completed because God's wrath is inevitable. Now we come to chapter 16. And it's in this chapter that the bowls are poured out. Seven bowls poured by seven angels. Now if you remember over the last few weeks, uh, we've had two cycles of judgment already. The seven seals and the seven trumpets. Now together, these three cycles of seven are different angles of the same end-time event. So the seven seals, chapters 6 to 8, represent God's plan 
of salvation and judgment. The seven trumpets, chapters 8 to 11, serve as God's warning for final judgment. And now we have the seven bowls, the final cycle, including final judgment. Now it's worth uh, noticing two things about these bowl plagues compared to the other ones in the Bible. And the first thing is humans are affected from the very first plague. Humans are affected from the very outset. In the trumpet and exodus plagues, uh, humans are only afflicted from halfway through. Secondly, the bowl plagues are unreserved in their effect. So we know uh, the, the seven trumpet and the bowl plagues almost mirror each other, you can see, except that in the first four trumpet plagues, they only affect one third of something. You can go back and check in uh, chapter 8. So these bowl plagues then are more intensive than any of the other series of plagues. These bowl plagues are comprehensive and they're final. So the angels are given the go-ahead. Pour out the bowls of judgment. The first bowl. Poured out over the earth and focused on those who worship the image of the beast. It's the idolaters who are afflicted with painful sores. The plagues afflict Pharaoh because he opposed God then, and the plagues afflict idolaters because they oppose God now. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now the second bowl, this time poured out not on the land, but on the sea, turning it into blood. And this parallels the first Exodus plague with the Nile turning to blood. But notice, every living thing dies, not a third. Have a look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third bowl poured out over the waters, again turning to blood, but unreserved judgment, not a third. But this time, there's a pause. The bowl plague is followed by an angel's decree. God is just and will punish those who persecuted his people. And then the altar responds. Now we know from Revelation 6 that this represents the martyrs, uh, those calling for God's wrath to come. They affirm the angel. So it's this announcement and response that even more affirms God's wrath. In line with the saints celebrating back in chapter 15, the angel is not embarrassed by the wrath of God. The martyrs aren't embarrassed by the wrath of God. Have a look at verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, 
True and just are your judgments. Three terrible plagues, the result of God's wrath. Yet we see this from heaven's perspective. The angel affirms God's justice. The martyrs affirm God's justice. Just like the saints in heaven who affirm God's justice. They're all not embarrassed by God's wrath. Now we move on to bowls four to six. Bowl number four, poured out without qualification on the sun, not a third. The sun burns people and we hear how they react. They hatefully curse God. They stubbornly refuse to repent. From this bowl forward, we see an escalating unrepentance, just like Pharaoh. Everything is in God's hands, yet these people desire to go against him. They angrily shake their fists at the only one who can stop their pain. In bowls one to three, we saw how heaven reacts to God's wrath. Now, how do God's enemies react to it? By cursing him. They say, you're a terrible God. You're just plain angry. And they hate it. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth bowl, no longer poured on creation, land, sea, water, or sun, but directly onto the beast's throne. His kingdom darkens. The beast's influence is waning. He's on the decline. With his fifth bowl, the rebellious are still afflicted. They suffer greatly. But once again, they set their hearts against God, stubbornly refusing to turn away from sin. How do God's enemies react to his wrath? By cursing him. A steady hardening and escalating unrepentance until the very bitter end. Verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Then the sixth bowl. Now we get more detail here than the previous five because this is the preparation for the final judgment to come. So the Euphrates dries up and this reminds us of the parting of the Red Sea in the Exodus. Foreign kings come in the same way as the the Egyptian army through the dried riverbed. We know what's going to happen, don't we? John then sees frog-like evil spirits. They come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Their origin is from this evil trinity, and we're told what these frog spirits do. Their purpose is to perform miracles so that human kings will gather in opposition to God. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. 
Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. You see, the final judgment is coming. So Jesus himself now speaks. He announces that he's coming soon. We don't know when, but he assures that it'll be when we don't expect. So he issues a warning. Be prepared. Don't be caught out sleeping. Don't be caught out unclothed. Otherwise, you'll be disgracefully exposed. We should respond to God's wrath by being prepared. And that means trusting in Jesus. Then, in spite of Jesus' warning, the frogs, frog spirits continue their dirty work, gathering human kings at the peak of their unrepentance. They are determined to fight God to the death. And it's no surprise that they gather at Armageddon, which is a term for the plains of Megiddo. Now, these plains sit just outside Jerusalem. So it's saying the kings gather outside of God's city, apart from God's kingdom. Verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, up to this point, all six bowls have occurred in the time of Jesus' warning. And we know this time as the last days, the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. This is the time that we're in now. Six bowl judgments poured out on the earth now. This is the Bible's explanation for our current state of affairs. God is angry and he's bringing people to account. And this explains why there's suffering in the world. But it doesn't end there. You see, there's a cinematic pause between bowl six and bowl seven. You can almost picture this coalition of human kings outside and in opposition to Christ's kingdom. But here we see of their final overthrow. Christ's final end-time judgment on those hell-bent on hating and opposing him. The seventh bowl. Accompanied by a chilling proclamation with finality and a foregone conclusion directly from the throne of God himself. It is done. Natural disasters overwhelm the earth. Lightning, thunder, earthquakes, the magnitude of which has never been seen before. Babylon, representative of worldliness, is utterly ruined by God's wrath. Even the islands and mountains disappear. But again, how do God's enemies react to his wrath? By cursing him. Huge hailstones come down upon them, and they curse God even in this terrible death. See, this isn't a picture of an even fight. It's not meant to be. Because Jesus comes and smashes them all. Verse 17. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the, huge sky, from the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon man and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. How can you see what's here in these chapters? Seven bowls of judgment, the final cycle, parallel to the seven trumpets, the same event, but no longer a warning about God's judgment. No, the focus here is God's anger on those who set themselves against him. They're the ones who've persecuted his people, the ones who stubbornly refuse to repent, the ones who persistently curse God for his wrath. Friends, what do you make of this? How does God's anger sit with you? Because you can't avoid it in these chapters, can you? Did you notice the way different people respond to God's wrath? And chapters 15 and 16 speak of two different types of people. One, those that rebel and hate God's wrath. They're decisively set against God. They curse him and are unrepentant to the core. But they're brought to account by God. They're given what they truly want. On the other hand, those who follow Jesus celebrate God's wrath. They know it's coming, so they escape it by trusting in Jesus. Pain and suffering are made right by God. Their persecutors are brought to justice. They have peace for their loyalty to the God of the cosmos. This is why they celebrate. Our chapters seem to say there's something good and just and right about God's wrath. Justice is carried out. All things wrong are made right. God's anger is never out of control. The saints sing that God is just and true in his ways. The angel says that God is just in his judgments. Now, there's a guy at my church in Melbourne. Uh, He's a friend of mine. Let's call him Sam. And he's the type of guy who loves a good argument. He doesn't shy away from speaking his mind. And he affirms that God is love. But he also believes that every time the Bible talks about God's anger, it just means that God is sad. He says, if God is love, then he can't be angry. If you think that he's angry, you're mistaken and bigoted. But that's not how the saints see it, or the angel, or the martyrs. Who are the ones who hate an angry God? It's his enemies. Now, God's anger shouldn't be pit against his love. It's his love for his people that means he has to be angry. 
Now, imagine if your mum was uh, run over by a drunk driver. Wouldn't you want justice? Wouldn't you be angry about it? God loves his people, but is angry when they're mistreated. But why are we embarrassed about God's anger? Maybe it's because we're comfortable. In our first world lives, we can be caught up in a Babylonian existence. And we absorb the world's thinking rather than the Bible's. And it's not easy. We're inundated with images every day. But whose side are you on? In a 21st century, Western, comfortable culture, we can be easily fooled. So we need to ask ourselves, are we being politically correct at the expense of being biblically correct? No one wants to believe in a God who's angry, so I'll just avoid it. When I'm talking to non-Christians, I don't like mentioning God's wrath. But friends, we need to reconsider loving God for his anger, as we've just read. Not being embarrassed about it, but recognising its truth, goodness and justice. Are you embarrassed by God's anger? Our passage says, if so, you're on the side of God's enemies. Because it means we don't feel the awfulness of sin. We don't feel God's anger towards injustice or his anger towards people who revel in his goodness only to throw it back in his face. Do I really want to follow such an angry God? If I think this, then Revelation says, I am at loggerheads with the saints, the angels, and the martyrs. I've set myself against God's very nature. How does God's anger sit with you? If God's really angry, then there's no point whinging or grumbling about it. Because if the finality of bowl seven is any indication, then fighting against God is hopeless. Rather than fight, kicking and screaming all the way like God's enemies, we need to submit to him. We need to swallow our pride, repent and accept his good and gracious gift. We need to trust in Jesus. To stick with Jesus even if it is unpopular because that's the only way to escape God's anger. Now, if you don't yet trust in Jesus, today's passage paints a grave picture. Don't be one of his enemies. Don't deny his wrath, because you know what happens. You don't want to set yourself against God, because he will come in awful wrath, and he will win. But in his love, he's done something so we can escape it. He sent his son to bear the wrath that we should bear. Now, in light of what we've seen, how terrible and devastating and scary his wrath is, he sends his son Jesus to drink the cup for us. And Jesus loves us so much that he willingly dies in our place. Friends, Jesus bore the full brunt of God's anger for us. So if you understand God's anger, 
The death of Jesus is a severe sacrifice. But if you're embarrassed about God's anger, the death of Jesus is robbed of its worth. How does God's anger sit with you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for being a God who is just and true in your judgments. And thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to bear the full brunt of your wrath, even though we should have. Please help us not to be embarrassed by your anger and so that we truly appreciate what Jesus did on the cross for us. In his name we pray. Amen.